Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On the Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer-term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out Rabbit Hole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Cooper Turley, otherwise known as Koopa Troopa on crypto Twitter. Cooper, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I cannot wait to chat about all the things that you've been working on and thinking about around DAOs and all of that. Before we dive into it, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? Absolutely. So about five years ago, I was very big into music. I was doing a lot of curation. I was doing a lot of creative work. I was coming out of college and I was looking for an industry to work in that felt very self-serving and very entrepreneurial. My whole life up until that point, I had never really had a nine to five job. And so as I was graduating with a music business degree, I kind of saw the music industry for what it was. And to be honest with you, I didn't really like what I saw. You know, I saw an industry that had a very clearly defined ceiling for most cases. I saw something that felt very ripe with middlemen and something that just didn't feel too exciting to me relative to the music, which was actually my passion. And so I found crypto as kind of this avenue to really just dive in and be completely self-taught. You know, what that looked like was learning about dozens of projects, writing for a bunch of projects, getting in the weeds, doing a lot of trading, doing a lot of yield farming, and just kind of learning what was going on. You know, I think over time, as I started to travel to developer conferences, I really started to find who my tribe and who my family was in the space. And from there, it allowed me to go from being, you know, kind of on my own, doing contracted work for teams to feeling like I was part of a community. And through that, I went through all the different cycles there were, DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, whatever it might be. And uh, today, I'm very lucky to be sitting in a spot where I'm working on the creator economy daily. I'm helping onboard you know, really talented individuals, brands, and communities into the space. And I'm really excited about this intersection of culture and crypto. I think that's super cool. And I love what you're working on with FWB and other projects to sort of think about these things. I was telling you before this, I want to talk a lot about the social aspect of all of this. And one of my favorite definitions of DAOs that you have is this idea of a group chat with a shared bank account. I've been super obsessed with a friend group creating like a multi-sig and just aping into things together. I'm curious if you think that like a friend group having a multi-sig with some ETH in it, buying NFT projects is itself a DAO. And maybe it doesn't matter if that's the definition, but I'm curious if you think that that sort of falls within that category. I absolutely think it is. I think that to me, a DAO is really more of an ethos than it is like a hard-coded principle of some clearly defined set of technical roles. I think if you and a couple people have the intent to share capital and value together to create more value, that to me is a DAO. And so what I'm very excited about is the fact that we don't need to have 
highly sophisticated tech protocols to be able to launch a quote unquote DAO. I like to say that DAOs are kind of the new internet LLCs. And if you think about the way in which many friends, you know, start startups together, we're almost abstracting that to the point where now you don't need a legal layer to get started. You don't need to have a bank account necessarily. You guys have MetaMask wallets. And if you're able to be slightly sufficient in how to use that technology, it's very easy to pull funds and do whatever it might be. And I guess the other caveat I'd say there is you don't even need money or capital for it to be a DAO. I think just the fact that people are coming together in a group chat and looking to advance their learnings and their communication, that to me is also a DAO as well. So something as simple as having a social club with five to seven members to choose where to go to dinner that night, that really is a DAO. And I think it's really funny that when you start to frame it as a DAO, you notice that that conversation changes from, you know, oh, hey, like, let's just do this on a one-off basis to, oh, we are really a family here and we actually have something special. And the reason that we're calling this a DAO because there's shared intent and mission for us to do things beyond this one-off occasion. Yeah, I love that. I kind of think that the reason that DAOs also are becoming more popular in that capacity is that they kind of give people a good excuse to do something together. Like if you vibe with people right now, all you can do is hang out with them, have like yeah, a group chat, but it does kind of feel like DAOs are the next evolution where it's like the, the next step that you can take with people that feels really vulnerable and like a, a moment of connection, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it absolutely is. I like to say in college, I was in a lot of these um, electronic music group families. So things like Grizz family, Pretty Lights family. I like to see a lot of jam bands. There's a very deep sense of community there. And so to me, when I think about DAOs, I get a lot of that same ethos out of it where people know each other through some shared mission but they're going to events recurringly they're spending time together online they have a shared set of belief and values and through that they're able to have really high productive conversations and connections so when i think about what these DAOs are really good for obviously it's easy to start thinking about things like investment clubs and protocol DAOs and all these deep technical use cases that we see today but i'm far more excited about sort of the human side of things where we are creating spaces for people to come together under a shared belief feel open and excited to talk together and now for the first time in history, actually having assets which represent ownership in those communities. So as they scale and as that mission starts to succeed, you can actually capture the upside of it as well. Do you think that every friend group will have their own multi-sig in like five years? I think the definition of what a multi-sig is will be drastically different. I think it'll be extremely easy for every friend group to have a multi-sig, but I think it's kind of the same as what you see today where... There's a very wide spectrum of creators on the internet. There's a very wide spectrum of group chats on the internet in the same way that some friend groups have fantasy football leagues and others don't. I think we're going to see kind of the same dynamic where it's not like it's a staple. You don't need to have a multi-sig to start a group chat. But I think that jump from going from a group chat to a multi-sig will be a lot more intuitive and a lot easier. And as a result, I think we're going to see a bunch more of them. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And on your point about creating these groups with like a shared sort of asset pool or honestly just working towards a shared mission, I'm curious how you think about these types of social DAOs scaling and if they need to. So like FWB seems to have chosen more of like the scaling route where you're at least in some ways creating value, whether that be through product or editorial or all of these different things. I'm curious about whether or not most social DAOs will want to scale and if that makes sense for most social DAOs, I'm curious if you have a take on that. Yeah, I think this is a really fantastic point to bring up. I think that when people mention DAOs, the obvious answer here is that there should be more members in a DAO, which will create more value. But I think what people fail to realize is that if you just drop 10,000 people into a Discord, that quality of conversation is going to be really, really bad. You know, if you think about where you spend your own time online, you want to be spending time in trusted pockets with people that you know and respect. And so as you're creating a DAO and as you're scaling it, I'm actually extremely bullish on this idea of small selective onboarding. 
So rather than trying to batch in hundreds of people every day, you know, being very intentional about who's joining, starting a DAO with anywhere from three to 10 members and being really, really protective of your time and energy. I think the one thing that you need to be really careful of running a DAO is what does the energy and culture look like in that community? And my biggest worry is that as you try and scale, and if you scale too fast, you're going to invite people that have different motives and alignment. Your top contributors are going to feel a lot more reserved to actually open up and communicate with that group. And so as we think about scaling, I think there is a world in which these DAOs get to be five to 10,000 members. But I think that happens on a very one by one basis in a very trusted system where people are being onboarded very organically, rather than simply just having, you know, everyone be able to walk in through the front door. I think there does need to be a little bit of a an onboarding process just to make sure that that culture can be maintained. Yeah, I'm also wondering, like, in the context of something like slowly building even a thousand person community, which is, I mean, I think after reviews now, well over a thousand, but still um, a relatively smaller community, it feels like sort of subgroups have emerged, whether it's based on location or interest. Do you see that organically happening in these communities? A, and then B, like the second part of this question, I guess, would be how can people who are building those types of social DAOs help those communities? stay below Dunbar's number, at least in like these subgroups? Great question. I do think it's happening organically. I think that there's a difference between someone wanting to do something and someone actually pushing that through and actually making it a reality. And so a lot of the times what I've noticed is most DAOs will start out with sort of one big town hall. It's everyone hanging out in the same spot. There might be a couple channels here and there that are a little bit niche, but for the most part, it's all under one umbrella. I think what you start to notice is that as that group starts to scale, let's say it gets to more than 500 members, you know, inevitably people want to have smaller pockets to be able to continue that conversation with people that they share similar values and interests with. And so I think that this model of having, you know, home base, town hall, central square is the perfect starting point. But as a community operator, I think it's your job to listen for what those new pockets might be and create systems such that when people identify that they want to have a new space to go and chat and hang out in, you are able to enable them to go and do so. And so a good example of this is the FWB City DAOs, which we launched this week. We now have sub DAOs in LA, New York, and London. And each of these sub DAOs now has an operator and a governance participant who's stewarding a monthly budget to host local events. And I think that's really important because for a lot of our members, Discord might not be the most natural home for them. I think that for crypto natives, it makes perfect sense. But for a lot of these new members joining FWB, they would rather participate on a local level. And so being able to segment that out and have a special space for them to come and meet IRL and digitally while not, you know, going too far away from the core values and mission of the larger group is really, really interesting to me. I think that we're extremely early in that conversation about how this works at scale. But from my personal perspective, I noticed that every time a group starts to get a little bit big, people will typically raise their hand and start to identify where they want to go break off and start a sub pocket. And I think your job as an operator is to make sure that when those conversations start to happen, people feel very supported in that. And they also feel like they're still maintaining a part of the larger family as a whole. Yeah, I think that's super important. Another thing that I've been thinking about that I really want to hear your thoughts on is what happens when someone doesn't fit the culture of a DAO? It feels like we're in this weird position where, especially with DAOs like FWB, I think Forefront is this way, where one of the big benefits is sort of the vibe. But when people come in who don't fit that vibe and end up sort of creating like a weird situation where it doesn't feel like they're in line with the greater group's cultural values... How do you deal with that? It's a good question. Luckily, I haven't had to deal with this too much. I think one of the better parts about token permission DAOs is having skin in the game and a capital asset, which represents your membership, honestly makes people think a little bit more about how they act and behave in these groups. I think they recognize that if they are to 
bring in malicious energy or to do something that just kind of messes with the vibe, they're hurting their own position, which I think inevitably makes people want to be a little bit more positive in their behaviors. But with that being said, I think that is inevitable. And the analogy I'll use here is treating it like you would, you know, the bad classmate that's in your high school math class or something like that. I think the teacher, which in this, you know, analogy is synonymous to a community operator, should really take the time to sit down with that individual one-on-one. You know, if it's a consistently recurring thing, making sure that they're very aware of the vibe that they're creating and making sure that they can just see that for themselves. I think what I've noticed is a lot of time, if there are any slight mismurrings or something in the community, I don't think that that community recognizes that there are other people who feel off put by that. And when you start to vocalize that to them and say, hey, man, like, I understand you're upset here, but there's a couple of people who have said that this is really like harshing the tone. You know, most times those people actually take a look in the mirror and be like, oh, shit, I really got to fix my own act. And if they're not doing that, I think that's when you start to step into a position where key community operators are able to have serious conversations with these people. Molech Dow, which was one of the first frameworks, has this awesome thing called Rage kick, in which case everyone in the DAO can actually kick out a member if the group chooses to do so. I don't think we have quite that same mechanic in more of these social DAOs, but I think the principles are still the same. Basically, if there is someone who's consistently causing energy and attention to the DAO that is not positive, I think there are worlds in which those DAO members sit down together and they're able to help address that situation in a very productive way. They're able to vocalize it as a warning many times. And if it's a consistent habit, I think that it's okay and should be encouraged that leaders feel the need to police and help, you know, expedite that exit so that there is not a consistent um, thought process that that anything can go and anything will fly. Yeah, I love that. And I love the collaborative sort of aspect of that. It's very Dow-like where it's like, let's sit down and have a conversation about this. I think it brings up a, a broader question and interesting thing to explore, which is how people who are in a Dow leave when it feels like it's just not a right fit, not necessarily because they're like, malicious, but maybe just because it's like, oh, friends drifted apart. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you think about that. I think the optimal scenario here is very similar to the clubhouse exit quietly button. I think that there's a world in which you don't have to make a big fuss about the fact that you're leaving, or you can go ahead and you can sell your tokens on Uniswap. If you're in an on-chain DAO, you can go ahead and just withdraw from the actual treasury itself. I think that that decision has definitely been one of the more challenging pieces of DAOs, because quite frankly, I've seen there be DAOs where people feel unsatisfied with how they're operating, but they don't want to leave because they know the social capital of leaving has a very you know negative signal associated with it. And so as someone who's running a DAO, I think it's okay to recognize that it might not be for everyone forever. There will be people who join in the earliest days that just don't really click quite well when it starts to scale to thousands of members. And so I think your uh, job should always be to communicate clearly, like there's no one keeping you around here. We are always going to try and deliver as much value as possible. But in the event that you are not satisfied with how this is going, we encourage you to make sure that you feel covered first and foremost. I actually think that DAO's killer feature is that for a lot of these token gated memberships, it's not a sunk cost. You know, when you're investing in an asset like a token or an NFT to get involved, chances are those assets have secondary market liquidity if that group has been successful. And so you now have the ability to go ahead and take out your original position, you know, cover some of your original position and or leave with the profit. And I think that that opportunity allows people to feel much more comfortable in how they enter and exit these communities. And as a framework, I think it's okay to recognize that some people will come and go. If they do choose to come and go frequently, there needs to be a little bit of policing on that front. But for the most part, it's perfectly fine. And I think we've only not really seen a lot of examples of that because quite frankly, many people get this kind of, uh, what, what's the thing called um, Stockholm, not Stockholm syndrome, but like when a lot of people do something around you, you're like scared to do it. It's like a psychology term. It's like if everyone says that one line is taller than another, but it's clearly not. The person will just say that it's taller because they want to go with everyone else. You know mm, what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's called, though. 
that's like Dallas. It's like, yeah, like everyone around you is great, having a good time. Like you might not be having the best time, but you see everyone else is. So you're like, oh shit, I'm kind of stuck here. Yeah. And I guess in some ways too, you're in this social group that is well-defined. So like if you're in FWB, even if you're not that active in FWB, there are benefits still from being in it, whether it's external or internal, which is kind of interesting, especially with FWB's price. Obviously, it's been like an interesting, there's been a lot of interesting dynamics. Did you expect any of that shit to happen? And how have you been like managing all of that where the price of entering the community has gone way up, but you also have this situation where like, if membership is the model for on some level, like value coming back to members, it just completely changes the dynamic. I'm curious how you've thought about that, like just from a mental model perspective. Yeah. So I mean, to answer your first question, absolutely not. You know, when I joined this project about a year ago, I saw an amazing group of creatives in a discord group. And I was very excited about that. You know, if you look back at the chat history early on, you will see that I've always been extremely vocal about saying token price does not matter. What matters is the strength and health of this community. And so when you look at something that's done so well as FWB, I actually think the token price is a direct result of the strength of that community. And FWB token has no economic rights. It's governance over a community, it's access, it's a membership pass. What's really special about that is once you get involved and once you actually have a key role in that community, people are locked into that almost for life, honestly. Like you're not gonna sell tokens when things go up because you recognize that everyone else around you is holding this token with you. Everyone's in it together. And I think that those social dynamics are really, really powerful. I think now what we're learning to deal with is how do we address sort of the, the downside of having such a successful token price, you know, being able to focus on inclusivity, being able to focus on accessibility. And I think it's kind of double-sided. For a lot of those early members, the, the cost to get an FWB when it started was $20. So it was 50 tokens. It was about $20 on Uniswap. And through that process, we got to see a lot of like really special people come into the community because they didn't care about token price. You know, they were there to have a good time. They were there to meet other creative people. They were there to ask dumb questions. And so when you look at FDB today, I think it's really important to recognize that this started out exactly the same way that every other group chat and every other DAO will probably start, where it doesn't cost a lot of money to join. It's basically free to join. There's not a lot of policing on how to join. But what we did a really good job of is really stewarding that conversation and making sure that as we had word of mouth referrals happening, we were sitting with those community members and giving them space to meet one another. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that through that process, we're now seeing much more of a formal process. People are starting to self-organize. But what I can say is I definitely had no intention that this was going to get to where it is today. And the thing that I am most proud of is if I were to step back and completely leave FWB tomorrow, you know, they call it the Puerto Rico test, FWB would continue to thrive. You know, it's, in, it's to a point now where it's bigger than any one of us. And I think that's a true testament to why it's so valuable today. And I'm extremely excited because I actually think we've only scratched the surface of the iceberg for what we're going to be building moving forward. Yeah, that's definitely a, a strong testament to the, the community and the social aspects of FWB. Something that I've been thinking a lot about on the social front is like people, some people at least, have said, you know, like, don't mix work and play. But it feels like this idea of a social DAO that builds product is very much mixing work and play. And I think that that's easier to do in a bull market where it feels like everything's going up. How do you think about something like this in like a bear market? I mean, obviously, building a really strong community early on helps make a lot of this happen where like you don't have people that are sort of um, only there because price goes up. But I'm curious how you think about that you know, combination? And then also like how much do market forces have a role in something like that? I'll start by saying that I live my life as a fusion of work and play. It's something that I've done for the past five years and I see myself doing for a very long time in the future. 
I recognize that that's not everyone's intent. And for some people that can be kind of off-putting, but I think the reason why this is special now is because we haven't really had systems that were financially viable for you to mix work and play in a really meaningful way. So traditionally, if we think about mixing work and play, this is building a startup together. This is working together or starting some sort of like secondary sports league or something like that. But you know, these new mechanics are so much more in tune with like our social desires, like meeting people, having connections, having real world experiences, you know, winning together. And I think when you look at it from that lens, it's much healthier to mix worth and play because the things that you're working on are actually benefiting you on both a mental and a spiritual level. And so when I think about what this looks like moving forward, I totally agree that it's not for everyone. And I think that the uh, reason why you see the communities doing as well as they are today is because everyone that's a key operator there is working on that full time. You know, I think it's very difficult for these communities to scale in the absence of people really giving it all of their time and energy. And in my opinion, it's literally impossible for you to go all in on something without it being a combination of work and play. And so when you think about these winning recipes, I think that a lot of these key operators are spending all of their time and energy bettering a DAO. And I think the biggest intent from a lot of these contributors is to help people shift away from this being like a passive group chat that you check like once every three days to like really trying to lock them into coming back and sitting there every single day. Because the more time they spend casually in there, I think the higher likelihood it is that they're going to become a value-added contributors. And the success of these DAOs is directly correlated to the number of value-added contributors you have on any given day. That's really interesting. I like this idea of work and play being something that sort of enhances your life on a spiritual level. That gets into something I've been thinking a lot about, which is mental health in the metaverse, particularly because when you have this fusion of your social life and your work, it can be like an infinite game. And because those returns on your time are so high, it can be challenging to like step away. How do you think about balancing those things and mental health in the in the metaverse more broadly? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because this has actually been the largest source of, um, I don't want to call it stress in my life, but this has been something I've been like struggling to learn how to deal with. And to kind of unpack that more, Crypto is extremely exciting because it's 24-7. It's always on. All your friends are online and there are infinite opportunities. But the downside of that is that when you do take time to step away from the computer and go and enjoy IRL, you are literally missing opportunities every single day. And so you have to make a conscious decision. You know, what do I care more about? Is it building with my friends online and making, you know, life-changing financial opportunities? Or do I care more about sort of having this IRL experience and stepping outside of my pocket a little bit? I think the the winning recipe is somewhere in the middle there. But the biggest challenge for me, specifically this last year in LA, is I found a city that I really love. You know, I found a lot of friend groups around me that really inspire me. I'm very excited about the fact that I have social opportunities to go and hang out and meet people of influence that I've always wanted to. But what I notice is if you start to stray too far in that direction, you start to lose your edge a bit. And I think in crypto, the reason why people are as successful as they are is because they are literally dedicating all of their time and effort to this space. And they are really, really on top of it. You know, I'd like to say I've done extremely well about this in my career so far, whether it's been from DeFi to NFTs and DAOs and whatnot. But as we start to scale here, and specifically right now when crypto is having such a moment, you want to celebrate that and you want to share that with people. And you're excited about the fact that people think that you're exciting. And so there's natural human inclination for you to want to step outside of that and really just like sit with it and just like celebrate a bit. But I think the the thing that I get really... Um, worried about is this concept of being tapped out. I think for a lot of people in the space, once they have success, they make a lot of money, they've kind of left their imprint on a project or two, there starts to be this kind of like waning cycle where people get a little bit complacent, they get a little bit comfortable, they start going out a couple more nights a week, you know, they start only working a couple less hours a day. And then you wake up one day and you realize that that person that used to be the center of all the attention 
they actually are not where the ball is anymore. You know, like they're conceptually aware of people that are working on things, but I think that they're in a very different state. And so my biggest personal battle has been learn how to celebrate success, learn how to share that with friends, because I think that's extremely, extremely important, but recognize that your success over the long term is going to be directly correlated to how involved you can stay. And so there needs to be a balance where you are never going too far down one side of the spectrum. Otherwise, you're just going to set yourself up for misery. Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge. And especially as crypto grows so much and you can't know everything, like physically, I think it would be impossible to know everything that's going on in crypto all of the time. And so it feels like that balance is becoming harder and harder. And maybe the answer to that is sort of like choose a niche. Is that what your approach has been? Like, how do you think about that? That's exactly right. I think finding one area to focus on very deeply at any given time is probably the optimal outcome here. So there's always going to be multiple sectors of crypto happening within those sectors. There's going to be different sub pockets of it. And I think to your point, you know, really saying, hey, I want to focus on this one area for this fixed amount of time. It feels like a really good precedent. I think what I'm excited about in my niggas uh, growth curve now is thinking about how do you scale your own personal time and energy? I think for a lot of people, crypto starts as a single player game. You're learning all the skills yourself. You're leveling up. You're going out and you're doing bounties. You're minting NFTs. You're joining DAOs, just doing all these kind of cool side quests. But I think at a certain point, anyone who's successful recognizes that they need someone bigger than themselves to scale and leverage their time and energy. And so something I've been thinking a lot more through is how do I advance and unlock my own time to be able to work on bigger things and to be able to have higher impact on what I'm working on? And so what this looks like is very similar to what we said before. It's basically a DAO. You're starting a group chat, but this time that group chat is less focused on ideologically everyone playing their own single player games and instead focused on like, hey, I've played this game well. I want to sort of like advance my own guild. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire people around me so that I can stay tapped in to everything that's happening without me needing to be on every single Zoom call. You're kind of like your own CEO in a lot of ways where you're delegating time that you would spend otherwise, intellectual energy probably. Like, is that how you think about it? Yeah, and this is getting down to the core of why I think DAOs are different from LLCs. You know, I think in the traditional world, when we think about starting a business, you have a very typical persona of CEO, candidate, young startup founder, et cetera, et cetera. They're going and raising money. They're building a product or service. DAOs to me are a lot less strict than that. I think that Everyone who has done well for themselves will inevitably need to scale. That's just a non-starter. But the way in which they do that, I think, can be very different. As I'm scaling my time and energy, I don't think there needs to be a precedent for me to go out and have to raise millions of dollars to be able to focus on more things or to be able to see more things across the board. I think crypto is much more fluid in nature. And I think that that exact reason is why these DAO frameworks are so appealing to me. It's because you don't have to have deep technical skills to start a company. You don't need to have deep organizational skills or anything like that. If you're in a position of power and influence, there are ways to compensate people in crypto in a very meaningful fashion. And what I've been most excited about in my career is there have been a couple of times when I've been able to help other people just put their foot in the door, whether it's through like writing for a DeFi blog or something like that, or joining a DAO, me taking an hour or two out of my time just to give someone opportunity and then watching them go off on their own and thrive. I've found that the more of those positions I can put people in to really like unlock and find themselves and put themselves in positions of success that always comes back to me. And so I kind of see my life now as like a combination of one, how do I scale my own time and energy? But two, how do I find highly talented people and help point them in the right direction so that even in the event that I'm not working with them on a day to day, I know that they're doing great work in the world. And I think that that reputation and influence will somehow come back to me and my brand in some way, shape or form. Yeah, that's really cool. And it feels like that's almost 
one of the models that DAOs do unlock where you have people who are able to start out contributing and then you get to a point where you've basically contributed to an ass load of projects in a meaningful way. And so it becomes this question of how you scale your time and and, and impact. Um, and I think that's really cool because it feels like in, in the Web2 world and to your point in LLCs and other corporate structures, you don't really have that because you're trying to optimize for the company still versus sort of optimizing for impact in the ecosystem overall, which feels like very much positive sum for everyone in the ecosystem and you. Yeah, I think it's a very delicate balance. I think the reality is that um, he who works on everything works on nothing. I saw that mm -hmm. quote from Chris Berninski and it really you know, hit me deeply because I'm in a position now where I'm contributing to a lot of stuff. But I'm very lucky, you know, someone at dinner last night said like they've never really seen someone who's been able to work on so many things but have such high impact in what he works on. And so I think my litmus test has always been if I am going to pick up a new project, I need to make sure that I'm doing something really meaningful here. Otherwise, I'm just losing my edge. But the sad reality of that is that there has been change and growth that's had to come with that. There are DAOs that I joined very early on, people who I still consider close friends of mine, but that I just don't have time to spend that time of energy on anymore. And as a result, I think those relationships start to change. And so something that's been honestly probably the most difficult part of my career and my DAO journey has just been this concept of of growth and bandwidth and recognizing that not everyone can have all of your mind share at once. And the sad reality is that as you sort of excel in your career, you're inevitably going to become more and more isolated. And I think that that has a negative connotation, but I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think that what's interesting to recognize is as you do more things of influence in this world, there are going to be less people who relate to you on that level. And so I always try and live my life maintaining an extremely positive sense of relationship. Even if I'm not able to come to your town hall every week, I want to make sure that you know that I wish you nothing but the best. I want to try and tap in from time to time and just congratulate you on what you're working on. But it's been a challenge for me, quite frankly, trying to maintain that same sense of relationship that I had when I first joined DAOs two or three years ago. But I'm very hopeful that I can continue to present myself in a way that people recognize that I am positive some in nature. And even if I'm not spending time on your project on a day to day, I will always wish you nothing but the best. And I think that all of these DAOs had a very special point in my growth and my journey as well. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, it's interesting too, because it's almost like the value that you provide in some ways has also changed, right? Like, I'm sure that what you were doing even a year ago, two years ago is very different um, from what you're doing now. And it's interesting because even like, shouting out Forefront on your Twitter has brought Forefront a massive amount of contributors and people coming into the community. So it's interesting because it also feels like part of it is just that the value that you're providing is changing. And maybe that is the whole point of you scaling things up in the first place. But how have you dealt with like that changing value add? I haven't really reflected on it much. I think that, um, you know, I've gotten to a point where my brand is now very powerful, influencing mover, which I think is really, really exciting to me. You know, the fact that I can just tweet something out and have it actually move the needle meaningfully from a follower contribute standpoint, I will never take that for granted. And that's why I try and maintain such a high sense of integrity with what I do. I think this core concept that your brand and your reputation is your most valuable asset is really, really powerful to me. You know, if you slip up and you start to make a couple bad decisions on where you're pointing people, if you start getting into more of a speculative mindset where you're telling people to buy things, they can get really dangerous. And um, before I get back to your original question, I want to say that like, it's been interesting to watch that the accounts that are doing the best on Twitter right now typically are the ones that are most speculative first. So they are really deeply rooted in community and they're doing a fantastic job. But people want to follow people to make money. And I think a challenge for me has been when I started my Twitter, I was writing about a lot of DeFi tokens. I was saying like, oh, this token's cheap. It's under this price. Like it's going to go up. 
And quite frankly, most of them did go up. You know, I was really tapped in and I was making really good calls. But as I started to scale my brand, I recognized that me being seen as sort of a price oracle felt like a really weird position to be in. And so nowadays you'll see that I'm tweeting more positivity quotes, more fortune cookie shit as people are saying. And I think a lot of people are upset by that because they just want to have free alpha. But I think the reality is my role in this space is to be a positive influence for others to join that. And I think relative to your initial question about how my role has changed, before I was in the trenches every day, you know, you would find me in every yield farm, you would find me writing about the deepest niches of the community, you would find me writing about new projects. I think now I've stepped into a position where I see myself as a leader, quite frankly, and I see myself as someone who's able to move the ball forward in a really meaningful way. And so for a lot of those newcomers, I think it can be difficult to realize that I once used to be in those same positions. But I love this mentality that I try and remain in GA for life. So I go to a lot of concerts and I get into a position where a lot of my colleagues will only go to the concert if they can have all access, if they can only have VIP and backstage. But I try and make sure that I always ground myself in the fact that there is value in being in the crowd. That's where the first really special moments happen. And so irregardless of what the work is that you're doing and irregardless of how much you've grown, always make sure that you're maintaining that sense of community because that exact principle is what's going to allow you to thrive over a very long time horizon. I love that. I think that's very grounding. And it also feels like what Vitalik and other people like him have done, where, you know, it would be very easy for him to like not engage with people, not sit in the crowd at conferences, but he does. And that feels really impactful and important. I have sort of a broader question for you, which is like, what are you most worried about and then excited about when it comes to the DAO ecosystem, the crypto ecosystem, it can be sort of like where these like broader trends are going, but also on some of this like mental health piece. I'm curious what's sort of like taking up your mind share. I'm worried about people starting ideas that they can execute on. I think that we're in a phase of the market where everyone's really, really excited to start something. I think that we're in a phase of the market where it's very easy to get funded off of a cool idea. I'm very worried that people will not stick around once the going starts to get tough. And so as a lot of my friends around me are starting to explore creative projects, they're here in LA, they're talking about, I want to start a PFP project or I want to crowdfund my next XYZ creative project. A part of me is inclined to be like, okay, here, let me help you. Let me map out this strategy for you. Let me tell you how to do it. Let me offer some social capital. But my biggest concern is that we are in a state of extreme bullish market right now. I think that this energy will not last for more than three to four months at this point. And so for a lot of people that are just now starting to really get it and wanting to dive in, there's kind of this conflicted interest that I have of like, I'm so excited about the fact that you're excited. I absolutely love this. It's what I've been working for for years. But I'm also like pumped the brakes a little bit because I don't think people realize that when you start a project and you raise capital for it, you are locking yourself into a very long time horizon. And I think we saw this very articulately in 2017. You know, we saw a lot of ICO projects get funded that probably shouldn't have a lot of very talented founders get a lot of money for something that just wasn't right, but they kind of now had this like sense of, you know, long-term commitment where they had to be working on something for a very long time, even if it wasn't successful and even if it wasn't clearly working. And so I worry that um, right now, you know, I sit at the intersection of culture and crypto. That's where I absolutely love. I absolutely love this idea of the creator economy, but I think there's going to be some growing pains where a lot of creators start things that typically they would have never started before. They're working in a new lane. And as soon as that starts to go bad, I think they're going to start to give less attention and energy to it. And I think it's going to set a bad precedent for their community. And so when I work with these creators, I really try and make them understand that this is not a short-term process. You selling out is not a success. Success is actually you committing to this thing over two to three years and really empowering your community in a really meaningful way. And so I would say that's, that's kind of my biggest worry is people just not executing on things that they start. 
Yeah, I like that as a metric also is like, how can you reframe metrics to be much more community oriented, commitment oriented versus, yeah, like selling out on the excitement piece? What are you most excited about? I'm most excited about how excited everyone else is. I think it's fascinating to me that I can go around LA every day now and all of my, literally all of my friends are like, how do we do an NFT project? How do we start a DAO? Um, how do I come to your crypto events? And I think my biggest learning and realization in the past couple of weeks is that crypto is where the party's at. You know, like beforehand in LA, I was going around and trying to be like, oh, I do crypto. I do crypto. It's super cool. You should pay attention. They're like, oh, crypto. Cool, man. Like I'm a big celebrity or something like that. Come sit down and let's talk about it just because you're really excited. But now that conversation has definitely turned. It's like people who are highly competent in crypto right now are holding all of the most valuable cards. We've got aces up our sleeves and people really want that time and energy. And so it's been an interesting mental flip to recognize that I don't need to go out into the world and like be this like huge spokesperson that's, you know, screaming from the rooftops to get involved with crypto. I can actually sit very comfortably in my position of productivity and allow people who get it to come to me to have very meaningful conversations. And I think that flip in mindset is very much correlated to where we're at in the market right now. I think this is going to change drastically when things get different price-wise, but for the time being, it's very exciting to be in a position where people want to come and work on, on stuff with you. And my current thinking is basically, as I enter into new relationships, who is going to be here when the market starts to turn? Who is here because they're really opportunistic and because they want to take advantage of the moment? And who is here because they actually see something special and they want to build over a five-year time horizon? And as I start to invest my time and energy into people, I think you'll notice that most all of the products I work on are being spent time on because I think that those people are committed to a long-term vision. And I recognize that a lot of those people will probably go through a rough patch, but I'm very hopeful that you know when the going gets tough, I think a select few of them will stick around. And my job is to kind of sit there and be that person of influence and that kind of cornerstone that helps people recognize that there is value in the space over a very long time horizon. And even when the going gets tough here in a couple of months, you need to be ready to double down because that's the exact time when you start to build the things that will last forever. I love that. Um, before we wrap up, I have a segment at the end of the show, which is what is your favorite thing in your wallet? It can be an ERC-20, NFT, doesn't matter. But what is your favorite thing in your wallet? That's a great question. I don't know if you knew this, Chase, but I have about like 250 tokens in my wallet. So I'm going to pull it up right now and do a little uh, scan <laughs> here. through the long ass list. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane. Like my primary wallet now, it's just gotten so much stuff from so long that it's like, it's absolutely wild. There's there's relics in here from so long ago. There's dozens of POPs. I mean, there's tons of NFTs in here. I'm trying to scan through here and see if anything jumps out as a good talking point. Um it's just fascinating. I mean, there's so many experiments of like social tokens early on, like platforms that never never really took off, but just happened to be like around. There's like NFTs that don't have market prices in here, but have like done extremely well and whatnot. It's just a really, uh, it's really fascinating, honestly, just watching how far all of this has come. Yeah, it's like looking at your entire history in the space, which is insane. That's what I love about I had Cersei on and he was talking about crypto archivism and like being able to dig through the blockchain and look at things in your wallet, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, I'm still uh, I'm still scrolling here. I mean, there's so much of it. I think honestly, my favorite NFT is this one called Generate by Fuck Render. This was the first like major NFT purchase that I made. And I remember at the time I felt so on the fence about it. I was like, am I really about to buy something for 10 ETH? Like this was before NFTs really popping off. But um, it was really interesting to like allocate into a new creative asset class that felt really different to me. You know, when I bought that NFT, I was very exposed to like, DeFi tokens, and I had a bunch of governance coins. I had like a couple NFTs here and there on Nifty Gateway, but it was definitely very 
new to me. But then having that one conversation with Fred before he became like this NFT God that he is today. And just like hearing how much I felt like I was making an impact in his life by buying that asset. It really just like, it had such a permanent feeling to me. And I mean, that, that NFT itself, it's this really beautiful animated flower with a crystal on it. It represents self growth and self love. And so there was a lot of levels to that, you know, when I think of that NFT, I like to tell myself I'm saving it to give to a gift to my wife or something like that in the future. And so I think that there's just layers to it where it's like, uh, you're making an investment in your future, you're making an investment in the artist, and it just feels really, really special to me. That's really cool. I also love the idea that you're buying an NFT for this like intent to give to someone who's very important to you in the future. I have not heard anyone sort of say that. I've seen like jokes on Twitter about like giving, you know, like rings and shit, but that's, that is really cool. Gifting NFTs is my favorite thing in the world. I mean, I've probably given 20 people plus like some really awesome NFT, like if it's a birthday of theirs. And I know that we've had a conversation about NFTs. I'll ask them like, who is your favorite artist? Who's a musician that you really like? You know, I'll go and spend some time on Nifty Gateway. And uh, it's been fun because last couple of months, like all of these music NFTs have been definitely bottomed out. There's a lot of people selling below the initial list price. And so I can kind of go and get a fire sale on like someone's favorite artist NFT and then go ahead and slide them it for their birthday. And they're like, oh, I just got an NFT. And then it's like this cool thing, but it also represents their artists. And it's like such a special gift that I think for a lot of people will stick with them for a really long time. Yeah, that's super awesome. I love that. Well, Cooper, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Best place to find me is on Twitter uh, at Koopa Troopa. It's where I'm most active on a day to day. If you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, Koopa Troopa number 9799 on Discord. I do my best to get back to every single message. I think I'm finally reaching a breaking point where me spending two and a half hours answering DMs every day is not productive. But um, I promise that I try my best to keep up with everyone. So please send me a message. If I don't get back to you right away, please be patient. I do want to try and help as many people as I can, but um, I am here for the community. I'm here to be an advocate and a steward here. And so, like I said, Twitter is the best place to stay up with me more broadly. And then if you want to have a more intimate conversation, please send me a message on Discord. The last thing that I'll note is we don't need to have a call for me to help you out. You know, I really prefer asynchronous communication. If you have a wonderful idea, write it out in text. It's much easier for me to take five minutes to read your ideas and give a quick point of feedback than it is for me to schedule a zoom call with you and so um you know it might be a long-winded answer but um you know i'm very thankful for the position i've been in this conversation has been fantastic and i look forward to helping everyone that i can amazing thank you so much cooper it was awesome to chat thank you for having me if you like what you heard please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast i always forget to do this for podcasts i like but it's actually super useful Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.